Hello and welcome to Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. By writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm LP. And I'm Will. And today we are introducing you to Dave Ring, editor, publisher, and writer at Neon Hemlock. Uh, Dave is going to be the second week of our weekly Pride editions. So you're going to see us all four weeks of June instead of fortnightly like you usually do. Welcome, Dave Ring. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting because I have the good fortune of being friends with several people who have or are publishing novellas with you, and you have uh, an expertise that I think you don't see a lot in the industry because while like novellas are hot again, um, <laughs> there aren't a lot of editors that I'm like, oh, this editor has a particular insight into this thing. So really appreciate you for coming and sharing your expertise. I'm willing to talk about novellas any day of the week, and I'm happy to be doing it on this fine Wednesday with y'all. Such a fine Wednesday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can we ask a different question first? I know I'm throwing a loophole right at the last minute. Yeah, what's up? Can you introduce Neon Hemlock and what you guys are before we get into the next question? That's a great idea. Can we get an intro to Neon Hemlock and like kind of your a little bit of background there before we get into the, the harder question? So Dave, could you give us an elevator pitch for Neon Hemlock? Tell us a little about its history. So Neon Hemlock's a small press based out of Washington, D.C. I use the royal we when I talk about it a lot, but it's basically just me. Um, we founded in 2019 uh, at the tail end of the year, and our first books came out in April 2020, which was certainly a time in our lives. Uh, and right, so that means that we're coming up on four years. Oh man, I just tried to do, do math while being recorded, and my brain just blue screened. So <laughs> everyone can just fill in whatever the time is between now and fall 2019 on their own. Okay. Yeah. Three and a half years. <laughs> I, I believe you. <laughs> so we normally ask a different version of this when people are on as writers and we've asked you this before at this point, um, but I'm going to modify it for the purposes of this conversation In the decision to create neon hemlock, give us three words that don't necessarily have to be connected to each other, but uh, relate to the creation of this press that we all know and love. Huh. Um, queer, messy, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Sounds like a terrible chair. No one wants to sit in that chair. <laughs> or, yet- or everyone does. Um, <laughs> Okay, so unpack these for me. Uh, first, queer. Oh, I don't want to write a thesis statement about these words I just came up with. Um, well, queer is the easy one. It's just we started because um, I was formerly the the volunteer chair for um, Outright, which is a queer literary festival here in Washington, D.C. And I've been doing that for like four years, and I had the great idea to start a chapbook competition. And I thought I had an agreement with another press to publish them, but I had misunderstood some things and it was like, oh shit, like I have to publish these now. Um, So I accidentally started a press um, and then things escalated. Um, And so it just started off um, hella gay and then 
stayed in that space because um, that was one that um, I wanted to do more work elevating that kind of writing and where my networks were. Um, I went with Messi as a, an attempt to acknowledge that um, it sometimes it feels like a lot of the queer writing that is celebrated in mainstream community is perhaps sanitized or overly clean in some ways. And I like the idea of pushing up against that. Um, not that we don't love, I don't know, like a, like a heart stopper kind of a story, but like there are other stories. Um, and then uncomfortable, I don't know. I think I like the idea of the, the, the sand and the oyster is what makes the pearl. And I hope that we're putting out pearls here, but I, that, that one just came out, out kind of uh, off the cuff. I resonate with those vibes. You know, I've read, I think I've read most of the novellas at this point. And I think Messy, Queer, and Uncomfortable does a good job of talking about what they are, uh, as well as the anthologies, for that matter. Um, so, okay, so right now novellas, novellas are tried and tested medium. And like many of our classics will probably be considered novellas by contemporary standards. So why do you think novellas at this point in time have kind of resurged? And what excites you about them specifically? There, I like the self-containedness of a novella um, on a lot of levels. I for, like during the pandemic, I had a really hard time reading, and one of the things that got me back was the Murderbot novellas. Um, they have a really singular voice. They feel very episodic. Like they feel like the literary equivalent of a miniseries, where you get to sit with them for longer than a short story, but you also they have like a little bit more meat to them. Um, and they have an interesting range, like because of the, the science fiction awards, you know, so a novella is 17,500 words up to 39,999. And, uh, that range allows you to both tell something that feels like a long, short story or something that feels like a short novel. Um, and at this point, I've read a lot of novellas because of the submissions for the the press, and it's just interesting which ones are able to sort of um, fit the most comfortably in their length, as opposed to feeling that they should be something else. Yeah, that's something that I feel like I've started to read for now that I know to look for it. So you've got a couple of like award winning novellas in in that stable, like. Um... And what may I offer you tonight? And sorry, what can I offer you tonight? And and this is how to stay alive. The uh, two longest titles that both start with conjunctions. Yes, <laughs> that too. <laughs> uh, and you're obviously reading more novellas than you're publishing. So I'm trying. I'm curious. How do the novellas that you choose distinguish themselves from the rest of the slush? Well. I guess to start with, there's a lot of really good novellas, y'all. Like, I have never had not enough to choose from. Like, it's always, how do I pick from these really cool things? And I think part of that is that there aren't that many venues publishing them. So, like, I am really, um, like, blessed for choice. I don't know a better way to say that. Um, 
there's, there's some really good stuff out there. So it's not really, you know, how does it distinguish itself, but it's more like which ones feel like they are the most suited to, I don't know, maybe me as an editor or Neon Hemlock as a press or like which ones in conversation with myself or Neon Hemlock will, will be the, the best fit. Um, and like, what do I have capacity for at any given time? Um, cause I've definitely had to say no to some beautiful books that if I had eight hands and more executive function, I would have also edited them. Was that a bad answer? I don't know what distinguishes them. I, maybe, I guess another thing is, uh, like I love a really, you don't have to backtrack. You said what you said. Backtracking. I was going to give you a little bit more. I felt like maybe you, you, I left you, you hanging. We'll take more. My... We'll take more. We'll take more. I'm just saying that like that was also a great answer, but please more. <laughs> I feel like y'all were doing the therapist silence thing, and I was like, oh, well, I better keep telling you about my secrets. That's because... me thinking. <laughs> that that's me loading. <laughs> You're fine, but if you have more, please share more. <laughs> Well, the the other answer that came to mind as I was thinking just there was um, I'm especially drawn to stories that feel like they are being told like back to their communities, regardless, and often especially so if like I'm not part of those communities, like it feels like a really cool um, like opportunity Tune opportunity is too kind of boring a word. I think it's opportunity it's, to witness. Pardon? Opportunity to witness. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of like like um it's I don't know, it's sort of like gratitude at being brought into a space that you normally wouldn't be able to be in, and then um sort of having the um privilege to help bring that story into the world, especially if it's one that feels like it might not otherwise have um been given a place to do that that's a pretty awesome feeling so i i have definitely like tasted that in the water and then like gone for it with some books good well okay so dave it also from like you know shingai is now like co-hosting with us we've had bendy on the show previously and Brent obviously is doing his edits tonight um so <laughs> my my question for you is what is when your name always comes up it's about intentionality that there's a lot of intention among your part to really bring in a diverse group of um queer people can you talk about that journey and like what makes you really go after that type of uh because you know a lot of times editors can sometimes just get in a one track mind, but everyone who speaks of you that I know has always speak that you're so intentional about going after writers and um, really seeking people out who are underrepresented. That's a really thoughtful, kind thing to say. I feel like first we might need to talk about how you're stealing all of my writers for your podcast. Because <laughs> they're amazing. <laughs> It's a little bit like that's a thing and we should acknowledge it, bring it into the room. Wait, didn't you ask me to bring Iori onto the podcast? Shut up. Listen, maybe there's, maybe this is like when you Venmo the same $20 back and forth for the rest of your life. But um, I love this. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I think I think some of that is um, <laughs> trying to transform the thwarted ener- editorial energy that I felt on projects where folks didn't treat my writing or my voice with the care that I had wanted it to have. Um, so just trying to like, you know, not do my people dirty is part of that. Um, but I guess th- 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 these are also just the stories that I find the most, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's not charity. <laughs> it's, it's like people writing fire stories and then wanting to put them out there and being like, man, these other people didn't realize how good these were. I know how good they are. Like, let's like, let's do this. Um, and you know, spending some extra time to not be an asshole about it, I guess is just how I think of it. Um, I mean, how does it feel? Because now like neon hemlock within like the science fiction and fantasy community, your novellas are getting awards, you know, and you're going up against like, say Tor, who has all this marketing and money power. And then you have like, you know, the magazines like uncanny, and say, I don't know, Clark's world or whatever, that um, it really, you're doing, I feel like as an outsider, you're doing such a great job by picking such great talent, but also that's you. Like you're really spearheading this and it feels like it's a big game changer in the um, industry. And what does that feel like for you? And do you see yourself that way? I feel like I'm just going to... Part of me just wants to be like gracious and like that's again like that's really kind of you to say. I probably can only handle like one more nice thing. So after that, if you can just be okay. a little mean to me, yeah, sure, yeah. I can trust me. I'm I'm the okay. I'm the bitch of the group. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Part of it is I think being in community with really great people, reading a lot of the great work that's out there, and knowing some names like. Um, both Brent and and Bendy were folks that I knew their work in short form and went after them and was asked them if they had considered writing at novella length. So um, I have one other situation kind of like that that I'm hopeful to announce soon. Um, but so there's that piece. And then there's also been being really lucky that people are trusting me with their work and their slush pot in my slush pile and then getting to, to read them. Um, cause aside from those books that I mentioned, everything else that's come in has all been through submissions. It hasn't been through like, um, solicitation. Uh, yeah, solicitation. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to think now I, I, it has gotten to the point where some agents are sending me work, but I don't think that I've been able to actually, um, acquire any of those yet. Although one of them did get stolen from me by another press. And I had my first experience of like wanting to DM another editor and be like, <laughs> how dare you take this book? But also it's so good. And like, can I talk with you about it? Cause no one else has read it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that felt like a, like a bingo square. I didn't know that I was looking for. And I had to, I had to message a different editor that I just knew a little bit to be like, is this a normal feeling? And can I send this DM? <laughs> and they were like, maybe workshop the anger out a little bit first, Dave, and then, <laughs> then can do it. <laughs> um, but 
All that to say, um, the awards are great. I'm really glad that those writers are being recognized. Um, we put out our first collection this year and it got nominated for um, All the Home Times You Can't Stay Away, Stay Away From by Izzy Wasserstein. That got nominated for a Lambda, but then didn't get nominated for a Nebula. So it's 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 also getting to do the thing where, the thing that writers already know, where you can't chase every award. Um, and just, like, I know how good the books are. And figuring it, it, it means that when you don't get an award, how do you get it into people's hands? Um, because as a small press, I don't have the like marketing dollars that tour.com has. So when my books don't win awards, how do I make sure that people hear about them? So that ends up being like a new, a new fun problem to have. You can always just mail them to Bigalus Dickalus. You know, Bigalus Dickalus, I want one of those like stink candles with (laughs) his face on it. And I'm just going to light it from time to time because talk about like a novella all of a sudden having readership like so far beyond what the authors would have ever expected right i mean so far beyond what happened when it came out like three years ago and that was a award winner i think that one the nebula and the hugo maybe like yeah so yeah we all would be lucky to have a, a big list list well (laughs) well i mean i think you know you're also coming from like being an author yourself and having to go and like editing it's like you just said it like you know you you take care of um your writers when you think about your own journey of not always being taking care of your work so you know can you talk about a little bit about like what it's like from being an author and then into an editor how does that inform the way that you work with your authors? That's a good question. I think it's interesting too, because I think I might be a better editor than I am a writer. And that's not a great feeling <laughs> in some ways. Um, Are you sure? I, it's just something you, you have to think about, right? Like, it's like, where should I put my time? And um, what, Am I more, I mean, there's where am I more successful at? And, there, and genuinely, like, what am I better at? And I, I don't know. Like, I, that's something I've been wrestling with a bit lately. I was looking at my submissions and I fired a couple off. Um, I don't know. I used to always have all my stories were out all the time. And as soon as I got an R from somebody, it was like, nope, like right back out. Like, where does it go? And right now, they often, like, I end up with like, 12 of them sitting in a little pile and then I have to psych myself up to send them back out there. So, so I don't know. Um, but aside from like the self-pity there, I think the, and I'm, I'm also coming from like a human services counseling background and I spend a lot of time thinking about like, what's the nicest way to say things to people. So like, I have a lot of opinions about um, what a rejection should sound like <laughs> and like what you should and shouldn't say. And how we should frame uh, what we want and don't want. Um, there and, should be a workshop at the Hugos. I mean, I'm also open with people disagreeing with me. It's just the, I think a lot of new editors don't necessarily realize that the the gift they're giving to work is not just, um, 
I don't know. It's not some like preeminent taste level. It's it's more just like how are you engaging with it, and are you the right place for it? And just because you don't like something, it doesn't mean it's bad. And there's there's so much um, thoughtlessness around that, both I think with writers and editors that hurt a lot of people. Not not maliciously, but just you know when folks get their their stuff rejected, they think they wrote something bad. Or when people, and then maybe when new editors reject things, they think the story was bad versus this wasn't right for me or um, this wasn't the right market, which I think is probably the case like 50 to 80% of the time. Well, let's talk about like marketing. So what, how, what is it like to market for, uh, you know, a small press? And if they're not nominated awards, how do you get the word out there for these amazing stories to be found i'm not i don't have great answers for this yet this is one of the places that i'm trying to learn and get better right now the way that i've made it thus far has been through that hell site called twitter um and building community there and then often doing crowdfunding campaigns, which have allowed me to put together like pre-sales to then to to print books as opposed to having to do it the the other way where you might like get pre-orders um, or you like sell the book afterward. Um, all that to say, I'm using a crowdfund model as both my fundraising and my marketing because it's easy to get people hype about a crowdfund and it also does a lot of my marketing for me i don't have grand solutions or really any meaningful budget for marketing so i usually do i I usually think of it as like marketing versus publicity right like marketing you pay for and publicity is is free stuff or it's through other opportunities Mm -hmm. and the publicity angle usually through again community stuff or through trade review trade reviews has been where I've put my energy. Um, and that's been largely successful for me. I think mostly because someone at publishers weekly has been really generous with their attention towards neon hemlock because nearly every title that we've put out has been reviewed by publishers weekly. And that's not the case for a lot of other small presses. Um, so I don't know. I think that's that's sort of how I've tried to to spin it instead is to put my time into publicity opportunities that I think might have an impact. And every once in a while, I might sink a little bit of money into a small targeted ad, but it's usually for um, like for Locus or for a particular event that it seems like I'll connect with people, but. So much of marketing feels like a black box and I just don't know what sales come from that marketing or like, I don't know how much, like I'm doing all these inputs and throwing them in the box and I don't know which ones are turning into sales. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of my friends works uh, for Harper Collins and it's basically, she's an, she's an editor and um, she says the same thing. Marketing never gives them a clear cut of what works. It's always like, Oh, this worked with this book and, but it didn't work for this one, but it's also, did you put equal dollars in it? So it doesn't seem to be like a lot of data, you know, 
that gives you like a clear cut solution. So do you feel like, um, so you feel like social media, you talked about how Twitter is building a community with Twitter being in a weird place because of he who must not be named. Um, do you feel, you know, <laughs> are there other ways that you're thinking of, of how to utilize social media um, to, you know, build the brand? I should be spending more time on that. Um, one of the things that I'm noticing as Neon Hemlock has grown is that some of the responsibilities scale well and some of them do not. Um, so right now, my bandwidth is pretty tapped. So the idea of like successfully navigating Mastodon or whatever else is like not a thing that I have any energy for. Um, I've spent a little bit more time on Instagram, but not, not meaningfully. I don't, I don't think, um, we do this, this mostly monthly, um, Instagram live gig called, um, Neon Nemlock live. It's a really, I love it. It's with you and Marianne, right? Yeah. Yeah. Me and Marianne hosted, um, cause Marianne lives in my basement. So we started it during pandemic and her. <laughs> she comes up the stairs. We sit next to each other. We do our show. It's actually kind of wild that it's been going for as long as it has. Um, although, and, and also, we just realized that we we just missed April. Like, mm-hmm. like we just spaced out and missed it. So, <laughs> luckily, it's not a, a paid gig, and there's no advertisers to apologize for. Right. <laughs> we just just missed April. Um, yeah. God, I didn't. I don't want to interrupt you. I just. No, I don't even. I'm just. I was just gonna say. So I, I guess that thing is that 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 enterprise, if you will, is over on Instagram. But otherwise, I just occasionally use it to throw photos up. Um, and I don't have a, a really great plan for what else to do when the bird site really does go down the drain. Gotcha. Well, you, you, have, you have a. You live in a city with a lot of um, universities. I think think uh a lot of universities with rich kids that go to them i think you should get a rich kid to be your intern your publicity intern that's interesting i think i don't know part of (laughs) i've been a manager in past lives and not necessarily a good one and delegating especially when so much of this work is like so close to my chest right now is something that i would need to figure out how to do we just brought on um so my new co-editor at Baffling is Kel Coleman, and they're awesome. And two issues ago, we brought on a trio of associate editors for Baffling to help with Slush. We're still a really slow market, and we have to figure out how to change that. But um, it's interesting how often when you bring other people into a, a room, it it increases the number of tasks instead of decreases them because then you have to successfully collaborate with a person as opposed to just being a tyrant and making all the decisions on your own. Um, so like two, I just worked on two co-edited anthologies. I'm really into both the books, um, but adding a second person to the editorial masthead for those anthologies increased the work. It definitely didn't decrease it because we had to check in more and make sure we agreed on things. And two people had to review edits and it, it just, those sort of things felt more exponential as opposed to 
I don't, I don't think anything got cut in half with two editors on that. So let's go back to, you know, being in, um, you know, like an indie press when you're now that you're getting nominated for like, you know, like the Hugo's and you're, um, and you know, like things have like really been building up and you're getting this really good, uh, buzz in the industry. Does that give you a sense of like more freedom and excitement to get maybe more experimental with who you're choosing or, does it, is it frightening or is it both of them exciting and frightening at the same time? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the, the latter, maybe it's exciting and frightening. I, I don't know that there's necessarily pressure, so to speak. Um, there was a little bit of, um, and I, to be clear, we, I, I would be really hype if we got a Hugo nomination right now. It's just been the, the nebula, right. Um, for the, for those two big ones, but, I think every time there's a slate of novellas that comes out on an award list that's all tour.com, people get like a surge of indignity that I'm happy for some of it to splatter on us. Like, but also when it comes to the, um, I still think Tor.com is like putting out good work and they're putting out weird work sometimes and they're putting out interesting, strange stuff. I'd still be happy to sell them my novella. Like I've got no bad blood there. Um, It's like, I don't, I don't know if they would have put out Ben's book where it's like the whole plot of it was, a space orgy to hold back the demon in the sun. Like, I don't know if they would have put out that book. Maybe they would have. Um, and then some of the, the, the books that we've put out have been accused by some as being no plot, all vibes. And I do think that that is a little bit further away from a tour.com book. And I'm happy to, I don't know, support, showcase, highlight, dig into the books with more subtle plot arcs than the ones that are getting shilled by Big Five. So I don't know. I feel like it goes both ways. Like, um, there's some pressure just because I want to keep putting out books that people want to read. And right now everyone's really hype and they're like, I love every book they put out. I'm like, what if I put out a dud? And then that could happen. And I, I guess it, it bummed me out. Um, but I don't know. We've already had some books where they haven't, people haven't vibed with them as much and they just sort of selectively forget them when they keep saying, I love every book that Neon Hemlock puts out. And I think that's natural. Like it's, it makes sense. Like I'm largely picking books that I'm personally obsessed with. There are many people I respect who don't like the same books that I like. So, um, that's, I guess, I don't know. That's how I try to be like philosophical about it. Now, what about on the distribution end? Like when listeners are going to like, and it could be a lot of people could be hearing about neon hemlock for the first time. So why aren't small presses say like in a Barnes and Noble, why aren't they, uh, especially with how they've reorganized, uh, the stores because now they're trying to create it more of like an independent bookseller where the staff can kind of uh, 
right. pick some stuff. So what do you, what are the challenges with that? So that's, um, that's a good question. So um, distribution has tiers to it. And we're kind of at the second lowest tier is how I think of it. Um, we work with a distributor who makes our books available for bookstores, libraries, um, uh, Target, if they want to order books through um, those uh, those systems, they can order Neon Hemlock books and they're available. Like tons of our books, like if you look at, you can find them on like the Walmart website because they are through those networks. Very few of those places actually stock the book. It's only on the online uh, side of the house. Um, unless, like you said, it's a Barnes & Noble or an indie bookstore where they know who we are and they are, are buying the books to their store. And that's partially because at that that second lowest tier of distribution where we are at, we don't have a salesperson who is regularly meeting with the buyers at those bookstores to get them on the shelves. Um, that would be a higher tier that usually involves having like... Um, for like up to 24 books out a year like it's just it's like a it's like a bigger operation than we have right now um but uh oh i had it it was like right there and i lost it um basically like four indie bookstores who hear about us and they order our, our stuff like oh you know what my thought was it was just the logistics of novellas our spines are thinner so like they don't look as good on a shelf. So yeah. I think sometimes people buy the books and then they don't, um, uh, they don't buy more sometimes cause they just don't, I think, I think they're harder to, uh, what's it called when you browse browsing, like just like, uh, like shelf appeal, like that mm -hmm. feeling, like unless they're face out, um, a lot of them don't shine as much on a shelf. Yeah, I, I used to work at a bookstore and like the smaller books, like a lot of times we would face them out and put them on a little stand because otherwise it's really easy to, when you're just browsing an aisle, just to go right past it. Yeah. So it's, it's like a very boring reason why they might not get bought more often but i think sometimes like logistics like that they're like i'm gonna have to display these put more effort into it so i i do think that comes up sometimes now do you have plans to um do you want to expand like do you want to produce more I books think so. coming out each year i think so i was initially just doing it as a matter of um I don't know. Like it just felt inevitable. So I was like, I guess I should do more. <laughs> and then I started to reach the limits of what my capacity was. And now I'm seeing that in order to do more, I need to figure out someone else to do finances and I need to figure out someone else to do possibly like publicity and like bookstore liaising or something along those lines in order to get bigger in a way that is, um, isn't going to implode. Mm -hmm. Now with those things too, is it also like when you're, when you're a small press or an indie publisher, is it also like trying to get um, funding like from an investor or is it more just kind of creating more systems to bring people on to maximize business and money opportunity? I think those are two of the options available to me. Um, like I could try to business plan it up. 
and get investors and go that route. Um, or which feels like it would get to where I, I want to go quicker. Um, or it could be stressful and I'd collapse faster. I'm not sure. Um, and the other option is sort of the, the slow, but steady, which means I'd probably continue to have some of the stressors that are not going great for me right now, continue for a little while, at least while I figure out which ones to prioritize. Um, and there could be some, I mean, there could be third options there too. Like the, I don't think the business side of the house is my greatest strength. I'm just, I'm merely adequate so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard because you're juggling so much. So with that being said, what does a day in the life of a small press company look like? Um, for me, they're really different. It's sort of like where my headspace slash energy is at. Like right now, I'm just reading so many short stories because I have like the brain for it. Um, and while I'm, my head is in that space, I need to use it because other, then otherwise I get really behind in my submissions. Um, but another headspace is, is often like an, I, I do all the, um, art direction and graphic design and layout too. So that is a different kind of headspace. Like you have to want to move tiny windows around a lot and like stare at kerning and like think more about fonts than normal people think about fonts. Um, so it, it really sort of depends. That's another, that's another kind of angle. And I think, I don't know, like when, when uh, my biannual like royalties are, are done, I just have to like hype myself up for two weeks and I'd be like, okay, we're going to do spreadsheets. And then just like really try to get myself in the game. Cause it's not the, the best part of me <laughs> by a long shot. So go ahead, Marshall. Go ahead. Well, I, I guess, I kind of want to throw something out there. Um, Nick and myself have been in a master's program for a couple of years and we've written all kinds of different length stuff and everybody in our cohort and our writing community and just keep writing is all in different places and aspiring writers on different levels. I guess what I'm wondering is if somebody was listening to this and they're like, Oh crap, I've never heard of neon hemlock. This is awesome. That length sounds cool. Novella sounds cool. Like, is there any advice you can give to somebody who was trying to get into writing this length of work? Like you've read a ton of it. Like I I'm just trying to, I guess what I'm trying to do right now is from your perspective, someone trying to, and I know there's not a ton of markets out there, but Neon Hemlock is obviously one, but what can, I mean, not what makes a good novella, but any advice you could throw out there just of, of if somebody's trying to get into this length of work. Yeah, I think so something concrete, if you wanted to experiment, let's say with like outlining a novella to see if you wanted to write one. Um, I think one way is to, I'm really bad at the mice quotient. Do y'all know the the mice that Mary Robinette Kowal yep. does? So Very familiar. <laughs> um, I think if you were to take that, I, I understand, again, that involves math. And remember earlier when I couldn't add to three. So that's probably <laughs> why I'm not great at mice. But I think you would just add it. You would make sure that number adds up to more. Basically, for a novella, you take a short story and you add a subplot. Or you could take a 
novel and you rip out all the subplots. Um, I feel like there's like different ways to approach it, but um, that could be the easiest way to start out, like thinking of how would I outline or even consider such a thing. And I think you think of ways to make a short story more muscular, like how do you add more systems to it? Um, or you take a novel idea, like a novel that an idea that feels really big and you rip out the stuff that um, might feel that might make it that long and make it really like streamlined. Mm. So I, I, those visuals like work for me. Um, I like recently I was looking at, um, so I'm putting out a collection from Susan Palumbo later in the year called skin thief. It's really cool. Dark fantasy horror. Uh, the original story in the collection is called Kill Jar. And when I read it, even as I was like, all right, we're going to do this. I was like, Susan, but what if this was a novella? Um, Cause it's, it's like 10,000 words right now. And it's really easy to see how you could do like five or 6,000 words as like a prequel, either as a flashback or as like a first section and then you could do like another two to 4,000 words after where like the end is currently written in the novelette. Um, and it's like, Susan, what if you did this? Um, and Susan, I mean, I'm thinking about it, but it wasn't for the collection. Like I, I didn't necessarily need, uh, I had, it's only the um, second collection that I'll be putting out. So I don't even know if it makes sense to have a novella in a collection. I think you could, but it um, does. Yeah. But it's also more like, it's like, what if in a couple of years you made a novella out of this for me? And I just, you know, <laughs> planting that seed and we'll see what she does with it. <laughs> but, and that was like a, so that was like seeing that story. Like, how can I make this longer? Um, which is different from staring at some ideas on a page of like, what length story is this? Cause I don't know. It's tricky. Like I, my personal writing is usually like, at the two to f- like my natural writing length for short fiction is like in the two to 4,000 word length. So like even getting to 8,000 is a lot for me. Like, but that's kind of how like my, like words for me are, are, I have to really eke them out. Um, it's always, that's the challenge for me. Whereas other people like they overwrite and they have to prune, right? Like that's not my problem at all. Um, so of the novellas that I've written, I went with the, uh, well, I guess w- one of them is like an accidental novella. That's the one that, that y'all read where um, I wasn't necessarily sure where that length was going to go. But then the other one I wrote was like, a, I love this form. I love this length. Like, how can I, how can I do this? And I like outlined it within an inch of my life, which is, is not usually how I do it. And um, thought about, how could I make something complex, but not novel complex. And then like played with those, like that kind of muscular musculature, like I was saying. What about, um, when do you usually have submissions for novellas? Like what are the different timeframes? So thus far it's been two times a year, once in the summer for writers of color. And for the last two years, it's also been for trans women. And then, in the fall for everybody. But both of those periods are for the same novella series. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is I, I wanted to just 
Um, with a lot of like submissions where you want to like encourage people to submit, I feel like the first one is like to, to remind people that you exist. And then a lot of times people don't even finish the thing until the second round, but at least the first round you're telling them like, we want to hear your work. We want to hear your stories. And then, and that gives them folks time to write something for the, the December period. Um, I am thinking about whether or not I need a, um, what's it called? Like, not a, is it a skip year? <laughs> I think I need a buy. A, a, a gap year? A like- gap year. <laughs> um, because uh, just re- reading all of them takes a lot of time. And um, I've been behind on a few submission rounds, and I think it makes people feel bad and makes me feel bad when I'm behind. So I think cutting one of those out might be in the cards um, just so that I can sort of get my house in order. That said, uh, I'm wondering, so if people wanted to submit where they can find you, where they can follow you, neon hemlock, you, you know, personally, what, what you have coming out, you're writing all that, like basically where can people find you on social medias and all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. So uh, neon hemlock is just neon hemlock and all the socials, the websites, neonhemlock.com. We are using submittable for submissions, but you can also see our like long, like the submissions page with the current calls that are open as well as past calls. Um, and the past calls is useful if you're looking to see like what our novella criteria is, even though it's not currently open. Um, so like I said, we'll have a summer opening for writers of color and trans women uh, open to everybody in December. Um, we'll also have a, what else is coming? Um, we'll be doing another anthology call at the end of the year. It's, it's possible that things will get shaken up, but I think what I'm aiming for, this is an exclusive for you all. I think the next anthology will be, um, like pulp fantasy, like sword and sandals, sword and sorcery kind of thing. Um, How awesome. And very much so inspired by Samuel Delaney's Navarian everything. Um, and I'm trying to work up the courage to ping him and be like, do you have any stories that you haven't put out? Because uh-huh. awesome. I can put it in my book. Um, so we'll see if that happens. But And then also baffling, um, if folks are writing Flash, I know that's different from what we've been talking about, but um, f- baffling opens twice a year as well for queer speculative work under 1,200 words. Um, and we're doing an unthemed issue and also an issue of quiet stories, um, which isn't referring to, it's not referring to volume, although we might play with it and have it just be all meanings of the word quiet, but in particular, like smaller, more intimate, like slater shifts um, in terms of plot that you might think of for stories. Um, And that's coming up for baffling. Oh, and then for me personally, um, uh, dave-ring.com is my website. And then on Twitter, I'm slickhop, S-L-I-C-K-H-O-P. All right, we have one more question. Go ahead, Marshall, you ask it. Look, I don't have Let's to just ask the question, but, but I will. So I, <laughs> I'm just messing around. All right. So 
Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, one of the things that we ask all our guests is um, usually what keeps them writing. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to change it up a little bit. What keeps you neon hemlocking? I think it's hubris. Um, <laughs> I think it has to be like in order to think like people care about what I think is good. Um, but so it's it's a little bit of that. And then it's also just sort of excitement at getting to make other people read the things I think are cool, which again, ties back to hubris. So yeah, that's that's why I'm here. <laughs> Uh, I love it. I always back them. I have all, I have most of the books. I just, I love what you're doing. I, I can't, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. No, it's cool talking with y'all. It's, 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 I don't know. Every time it turns out that these books are actually on people's shelves and in their hands, it's like a cool reinforcement and it feeds the hubris, which is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll have you on again soon for sure. So thank you. <laughs> cool. Looking forward to it. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias. And please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.